Well, guys, we're down to the wire here. We are down to the wire, and it's not going to be too many more Sundays that I get to say, please turn with me in your Bible to the book of Proverbs, uh, because uh, we're approaching the end. And just so you know, um, we'll probably do one or two more messages getting us through the end of Proverbs 31. And then, as is my custom, if you've uh, sat under my teaching before, I always like to end a series with what I call a jet tour through the book. Uh, that is Mach 2 with our hair on fire while we try to uh, summarize in one message the major themes and contours of the book. So I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing what I say, actually, because I have no idea how I'm going to summarize Proverbs in an hour. So uh, we'll see. You can come and we'll have fun together. How's that? But before we get there, we need to get to one last chapter. Uh, we are in chapter 31 today. If you're just joining us, we've been in a verse-by-verse study of the book of Proverbs for the last... Uh, about two, what's that? It's 31. 31. Yeah. What are the, what are the notes? You might have the old notes. Um, yeah, so the, the, the new notes came in late. Uh, it should say Proverbs 31, 1 to 9, Lemuel part 1. And if you do not have those, slip your hand up. Oh. Okay. So that is a, that is an editorial error. Okay. Well, yes. So it should just to scratch that out. Thirty-one, one to nine. Thank you. Um, okay, great. I will fix that. So that's what we're looking at today, chapter thirty-one, the first nine chapters. And uh, uh, this is you're going to find this, I, I think, to be an interesting section. You know, um, I love teaching the Bible, and I've been doing it for years. And um, every now and then, you get to a section, you go, "What on earth am I going to do with this?" And uh, God is so kind to just uh, illuminate and, and bring significance to his text as we study it. And uh, so I'm, I'm actually really, this has gone from being kind of an obscure text to something I'm very excited to share as it's, uh, it's uh, uh, become apparent to me. So, um, so Proverbs 31, verse 1 to 9, let's just read the section and then we'll, uh, we'll look at it together. Uh, the words of King Lemuel, the oracle which his mother taught him. Does anybody have a different version there? Does it say anything about Massa in any of your versions? An utterance? Okay, all right. Okay, the words of King Lemuel, the oracle which his mother taught him. What, O my son? And what, O son of my womb? And what, O son of my vows? Do not give your strength to women, or your ways to that which destroys kings? It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire strong drink. For they will drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to him whose life is bitter. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his trouble no more. Open your mouth for the mute For the rights of all of the unfortunate, open your mouth, judge righteously, and defend the rights of the afflicted and the needy. Okay, well there's our section, and uh, right out of the gate you notice, what what do we notice in verse 1 that we have to try to figure out? Yeah, we've got a a new author here, and uh, as you know, the book of Proverbs is largely written by what the Bible tells us is the wisest man that ever lived 
or would ever live. Uh, when God granted uh, King Solomon the wisdom, uh, a special gift of wisdom, God himself told him that there would not be anyone that would even come after him that would be wiser than Solomon. So the book of Proverbs is largely the wisdom of Solomon, and we've, we've noted uh, several times throughout the book that there are some accessory authors um, that we've seen. Uh, there, in fact, there were... The, um, uh, it was not like Solomon picked up his pen and wrote the whole thing. He probably wrote a lot of it, but some of it was actually compiled by Solomon's mighty men, people that would have been uh, around him and worked with him in the nation of Israel. And, of course, they would hear him regularly. They would hear his counsel. They would watch him make judgments. And uh, after Solomon died, uh, they took some of those collected sayings, wrote them down, and that became a part of the book of Solomon or the book of uh, Proverbs. Um, but these last two chapters, we have some guest authors. And as God uh, providentially worked to bring this book together as one of his inspired texts in the Bible, uh, he allowed these other two men to be a part of his inspired and errant word. Uh, we've been talking about Mr. Agur back in chapter 30. And uh, we've said that other than knowing he's the, the son of Jaqeh, we really don't know much about him. And now we're kind of uh, left with the same dilemma all over again in chapter one of chapter in verse one of chapter thirty-one. The king, uh, the words of King Lemuel. So tell me, who is Lemuel? Let me hear your best guess. I know you've been you've been waiting to tell me. You've been studying this all week. So uh, who is this guy? <laughs> well, we know we know he had a mother, right? Because it says this is the oracle his mother taught him. So that's good. Um, yes, yes, he is the son of his mom, and uh, Brian was the one who said uh, a couple weeks ago that Agur was the son of Jaqeh, so he's our resident Bible scholar here, so that's good. Um, yeah, what do you, what do you think? And, and maybe uh, you probably have, a, if you have a study Bible, there's probably a reference there, um, so I mean, you can, you can cheat if you want and read, but uh, what are some of the options here? Yes, Ruth. Okay, okay. Um, some people think that this is another name for Solomon. And the reason it's not using the word Solomon is that Lemuel was the nickname of Solomon that his mother called him. Uh, how many moms in the room? Raise your hand. Raise your hand if you're a mom. Raise it high. Come on, be proud, moms. All right. Um, do you always call your children by their given name, or do you have little nicknames, little, little pet names? Little you know, Some of you might be like, no, I don't. Some of you might be, yes, I do. Um, right? We call him Zippy, right? He's just, you know. Um, our nine-year-old Eric, uh, who is playing flag football this fall, uh, we call him Zippy. And if you saw him use his blockers to get around people, you'd see why we call him Zippy, you know, so... Um, so that's possible, and other than just totally guessing, uh, that's probably the best possibility for Lemuel. It fits the context, and uh, it makes sense in light of what we're going to read. So, uh, so who's Lemuel? Um, look at your notes there. We don't know for sure, but long-standing Jewish tradition taught that it was Solomon. In fact... Um, we have just celebrated uh, the 501st anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, right? Back on October 31st, Reformation Day. And as you know, uh, what came out of that was all sorts of good things, the rediscovery of the biblical gospel, um, a, a um, 
a new emphasis on Bible study. Of course, the printing press had just been invented a few years prior to that. So now you have Bibles being translated and, and published. One of those Bibles that was published in the 16th century uh, was a Bible, an English Bible called the Geneva Bible. It wasn't the first English Bible, but it was um, it was one of the first. And uh, who can tell me what's what was unique about the Geneva Bible? Let's do a little Bible version uh, history trivia here. So, what was unique about the Geneva Bible? This is the part where you jump in and show me your Bible scholar. Okay, go for it. Not everybody at once now. What English Bible was brought over on the Mayflower to the Americas? The Geneva Bible. Did you know that? Okay, now you do. Um, It was the Bible of the English Puritans. It was the Bible of John Bunyan, who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, the second best-selling book of all history next to the Bible itself. But something you may not know about the Geneva Bible is that it was the first study Bible. It was the first Bible that actually had in the margins study notes. Did you know that? And if you, and in fact, if you ever go to a Bible, an old Bible display, and you're looking at an old English Bible and you see study notes, you don't even need to look at the caption. You know what it is. It's a Geneva Bible. Okay? Well, the Geneva Bible, the study notes in the, the Geneva Bible first published in the 16th century noted that Lemuel was Solomon. So does that prove it? No, that doesn't prove it. But what it says is, according to Jewish tradition and according to church tradition, that was the consensus. So we don't know for sure, but anytime you have a strong tradition like that, when you have an interpretive issue, you're not sure about that strong tradition lends some weight to our conclusion that it likely was Solomon. Uh, so Lemuel, uh, and this is interesting, Lemuel is not, I mean, it could be a proper name, but it's actually maybe better translated belonging to God or devoted to God, for God. Of course, um, whenever in the, in the Old Testament, whenever you see the words E-L on the end of something, whenever you see E-L, uh, that's an abbreviation for what Hebrew word? For God, Elohim, right? So, for example, Daniel, the name Daniel, right, ends in E-L. It means God is my judge, right? So, we see that Lemuel means belonging to God, devoted to God, perhaps. You could even translate it for God. Um, so, that would, that would be appropriate because if Solomon is Lemuel, and this is the oracle that his mother called him, or this is the name that his mother called him in the oracle that she gave him, uh, who's the mom? Bathsheba. Huh. That's going to make this very interesting. In fact, the historicity and the background of this little section, I think in part is what makes this such an interesting section to study. And you'll see what I mean here in a minute. So it's possible that was the name his mother called him. And, and it makes sense because Solomon is Bathsheba's son. Who's Solomon's father? King David. And who did we understand to be the next king of Israel? The one who would build 
the temple that David wanted to build. Who's this? It's Solomon. So it's very plausible that as Bathsheba thought about her son, she thinks this is the one that's devoted to God. He has a, he has a divine mission ahead of him in his life. So you see, it all fits together. Again, can't be sure, can't, what we say, we can't pound the pulpit too hard, but it's plausible. Yes, Roger. That's interesting. That, that, that would be a, a great question. And, and one, of it, one of the answers to that might be that this could be Solomon who's writing this section, or it could be, like I said, one of, those, one of those mighty men, one of those other associates with him who understood this material, or maybe they found the material, maybe they heard the material, and they penned it down also. But, but the Bible does that uh, occasionally where people will talk about themselves in the third person, other things like that. So that's not totally out of character for biblical revelation. Okay, but great question. And that, and, and that may be one of those evidences that says, well, maybe, maybe this isn't Solomon. We could also take it like that also. Okay, so if Lemuel does refer to Solomon, then the oracle that his mother taught him came from Bathsheba. Bathsheba was um, Solomon's mother. Now you'll remember... Um, as we get into the history of this, uh, David committed adultery with Bathsheba. What happened to the child? He died. Okay, so Solomon was not, um, uh, obviously, uh, was not uh, the child that was initially conceived. Uh, he was conceived after uh, David married Bathsheba, since he murdered uh, her husband. And um, you start to get in the story, and you go, man, this is... This is really ugly. It is. And, and I think as we get into the history here, you'll see that there is both irony and grace in this little section of Scripture. Irony and grace. Well, you'll see what I mean. Let's first look at what he says here. Um, the words of King Lemuel, the oracle which his mother taught him. Isn't it interesting that the Bible itself, the inspired and errant Word of God, is emphasizing the important role that a godly mother plays. The important role that a godly mother plays. In fact, that's the first main point on your outline there. Recognize the influence of a godly mother. Um, Proverbs demonstrates the need for parents to shepherd and teach their children. We've seen that over and over and over again. This is, this is a parenting book. And one of the things for the moms and dads in the room that we're supposed to get is, my home life should sound like this. My home life, whether I'm a parent or a grandparent or great-grandparent, my home life should sound like this book sounds. And how does this book sound? It sounds like the normal conversation of the home, follow me here, the normal conversation of the home is connecting God's Word to life. That's Deuteronomy 6, right? We, we speak about God's word when we sit down, when we rise up, when we go to Walmart. Well, it doesn't say when we go to Walmart, but, but when we go out, when we come in and, we, we, you know, talking about God's word should not be in these, these isolated conversations where we're going to do Bible study now, kids, although that's good. And it shouldn't be like, okay, we're, we're talking about church stuff now. And we're going, no, talking about God's word, talking about our relationship with God as it connects with life should be the normal discourse of our home. That sort of conversation should be the atmosphere 
of a godly home. And Proverbs, perhaps more than any other book, demonstrates that and models that. What does it look like for a dad to talk to his boys? What does it look like for a mom to talk to his kids? And, and of course, for us old people in the room, that means that we need to know God, right? We need to know His Word. We can't, we can't impart something that is not clear to us. So we have to be studying and we have to be learning and growing ourselves so that we can again turn around and, and give that to our children. Now, the, the Proverbs has, has noted that both mother and father should be engaged in this work. So just by way of review, this is not anything too profound or shocking, but if we just peek back at chapter 1 for a moment, right at the very beginning of our study, uh, Solomon says, uh, right out of the starting blocks, Hear, my son, this is verse 8 of chapter 1, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Well, what is he demonstrating for us now? He's, Solomon is demonstrating in chapter 31 that his mother did what he is now telling his children to do, right? He's saying, don't forsake what your mom says. Don't forsake what your father says. And Solomon notes in chapter 31 that his mom taught him some things. And that's good to remember. Godly mothers, let me just remind you, um, I'm not going to put anybody on the spot or anything like that, but but I know that if we were to just go around the room, many of you grew up with less than perfect parents. And in fact, some of you may have grown up with ungodly parents. And in fact, some of you grew up with maybe only one parent or maybe a situation where other family members were primarily caring for you. Um... Some of you would say, it was a godly mother that really was the influential person in my life. Some of you would say, you know what, it was really my grandmother that entrusted the things of God to me. Now, I was a kid and I didn't, I blew kind of a lot of it off. But I realize now as a Christian adult, the influence and the impact that my grandmother or my mother had in my life. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of parents today, a lot of single moms that are raising their children by themselves. And what, what hope we can give them from a text like this that a godly mother can have a huge impact on her children. Uh, let me just remind you, if you want to hold your place there, um, the pa- listen to this. The pastor of one of the most influential churches in the first century, the pastor of the church at Ephesus, was highly and significantly influenced by two women in his life. Do you remember that? If uh, you don't remember, just peek over at Second Timothy chapter one. I'll read it to you. Paul's writing, of course, to Timothy, who is the pastor at Ephesus. He's a young man. And, uh, but listen to what he says. Well, listen to what Paul reminds him of. Uh, so this is 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way of my, for- my forefathers did as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you even as I recall your tears. Verse 5, for I am mindful, listen to this, I am mindful of the sincere faith within you which you first, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I'm sure that it is in you as well. Now, here's the question. Here's the question, okay? How did the faith of a godly grandmother 
and a godly mother translate down, get, get turned into influence in this young man called Timothy. How did it go there? Well, we don't have to guess because the Bible actually tells us. Flip the page and look at chapter 3. Chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14. You, however, Timothy, continue in the things that you have learned. Listen to this, that you have learned and become convinced of knowing from whom you have learned them. Here it is. And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, that's the scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. What did that godly grandma and what did that godly mother do? They poured God's word into this little young guy. When Timothy was a toddler, his grandmother and his mother poured the word of God into him. Now he's a pastor. Isn't that awesome? So if you were in that role, if you are in that role, or you know somebody that's in a single parent situation, or they're married to an unbelieving husband or something like that, what encouragement we can give to those ladies, those godly ladies that are trying to do the work of gospel influence in their children and grandchildren alone. This is God-inspired proof that the influence of a godly mother, the influence of a godly grandmother can be quite profound. Okay, on your notes there, God underscores the truth that a godly mother can be exceedingly influential by including an oracle by a godly mother as part of his inspired word. you know how rare that is? Most of the Bible is written by guys. And we're not supposed to read anything into that more than just saying that was God's will. But look at this. A godly mom gets nine verses of God-inspired glory. I think that's really cool. Okay, so recognize the influence of a godly mother. Secondly, what is, what is this godly mother, Lemuel's mother, going to impart to her son. Now, I want you to see this, okay? This is a mom talking to her boy. Okay? Now, now some, some of you moms have just done this. You've just sent one of your boys off to college, right? We've got a couple college guys right here. You might just have just sent your son off to drive in his car for the first time by himself. He might have just gone and taken his first job. Now he's in the world. Mom's not there. Okay? What would a godly mom say to her boys? And I, I don't think this is unique just to sons. I think sons and daughters, although it's, it's talking about a son. You know what she, this is really profound. This godly mom warns her sons about two of the most significant dangers of going into young manhood. Women and wine. Still true. And, and, and I was waiting for you to say that. This is almost 3,000 years old. Now talk to me. Talk to me, college guys. Are those still dangers on your college campus? Absolutely. You get involved in sexual sin. You get involved in alcohol. And that can destroy your life. You can be 19 years old. And you will feel repercussions of that for the rest of your life. So young people, I want you to listen up. You, you may be junior high, high school, college. You need to hear this. You need to hear the God-inspired wisdom of a godly mom to her sons. She is so, so right. As, as Ruth just said, nothing has changed in 3,000 years. These two things, perhaps more than any other danger, as you go out into the world, have the potential to ruin you for the rest of your life. 
Now, I'm not saying there is not grace and mercy and forgiveness. The gospel can work even when we get involved in horrible sins like this. So, so don't hear me saying it's hopeless. But you know what? Far more wise a road to take is to not even get involved. See these dangers and steer away from them. Don't get involved. Be wise now. Avoid the sorrows of the ungodly that the scriptures are so vocal about. So let's look at the first one. Verse 3, the first danger that uh, Solomon's mom or Lemuel's mom gives to him. He says, do not be led astray by women. Look at verse 3. Do not give your strength to women or your ways to that which destroys kings. Notice the language here. It's not a fling. It's not an affair. It's not what everybody is doing. She looks her boy in the eye and says, son, this will destroy you. And that's not new. Solomon has told us that in chapter 5. He's told us that in chapter 7. He's told us that in chapter 9. I mean, this, one of the themes of this book, since it's a book to young people, is don't destroy your life by getting involved in sexual sin. That's what it means here to give your strength to women. Um, we can cross-reference that, as you see in your notes here, back to when Solomon first talked about this in chapter 5, when he's talking about the, the young man who would get involved with a woman he's not married to. The lips of the adulteress drip honey and smoother than oil is her speech, but in the end she is as bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold of shield. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways are unstable, and yet she does not even know it and so what does he say back in chapter 5 young people listen up do not even go near the door of her house let me translate that into 21st century america you be careful what you look at on your phone you be careful what you look at on your computer you be careful how close you get to a person of the opposite sex you be you be mindful of the context with which you put yourself in and the bible would say that the question the question is not how far can I go and not sin? That is foolish. That, that is destructive. The question is, how holy can I be? And the Bible's admonition is, you don't go anywhere near sexual sin. Stay away from it. Listen to what he says in chapter 5, verse 10. If you fall into sexual sin, listen to the language, very similar to Proverbs 31. And stranger, he says, you will give your vigor to others, your years to the cruel one, and strangers will be filled with your strength and your hard-earned goods will go to the house of an alien. That was the ninth century version of what we now call child support. But his point is, you are taking your best years, your best resources, your best abilities, your best resources to live a life of influence, of glory to God and ministry to others. And you're wasting it. So young people, don't waste your life. Don't do this. Don't get involved. Be wise. Be careful. Be, be smarter in Jesus than all your peers. Don't give your strength to women or your ways to that which destroys kings. If you like to underline, highlight, circle stuff in your Bible, do that with the word destroy. Because that's what sexual sin does. You think, I do this, 
back in the dark. Nobody knows what's going on. No one's going to find out. Everybody does it anyway. The Bible's, the Bible's interpretation of that is it will destroy you. Ungodly romantic relationships can bring destruction. We've seen that in Proverbs 5, Proverbs 7, Proverbs 9. You remember Proverbs 7, how Solomon does this? He, he says to his son, hey son, look out the window, look out through the lattice, and he sees dad and son. I, I, I picture Solomon with his arm around his son. They're looking out the window, and they see this guy, this young guy that the Bible describes as a young man lacking sense. He's not stupid, he's just naive. He's not dumb, he, he, he's just not been taught the things of God, so he doesn't know any better yet. And he's hanging out, he's just kind of loitering, and, and dad says to son, you know why he's loitering out there? No, Dad. Because that's where the prostitutes hang out. That's what he's waiting for. And so, you know, son's eyes get about that big, and let's watch and see what happens. And sure enough, she shows up. The, the, the lady that shows up dressed like a prostitute, dressed, uh, dressed like someone who would sell herself. And um, they interact and the Bible gives us a description of that, that, that he's tempted, that she's flattering, that, that she is attractive, and he is falling into temptation. He knows better. She says things like this, my husband's not home, he's taking a big old bag of money with him, he's not coming back till the new moon. And then she says this, I've paid my sacrifices, I've paid my vows, I've done my religious duty, check, see, everything's okay. Come, let us drink our fill of love until morning, she says. She invites him to the encounter. And then the Bible says this, God-inspired warning. Suddenly, he goes after her like an ox goes to a slaughter. Now, I'm a city boy. How does an ox go to the slaughter? Talk to me. Dumbly, Dumbly yeah. He's clueless that he's about... To die. He's, right? They just, is that how it works? Right? Farm animals, they don't have a clue. They're going to the slaughter. Suddenly he goes after her like an ox to the slaughter. Or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool. Describes it as a bird, a bird trapped, right? In a, in a, in a trap. And then the Bible says this. And he does not know that it will cost him his life. Dad, son, looking out the window. They're talking about this. That's what happens. That's what happens. So young people, please hear the plea of we old people that love you. We old people that some of us have made those mistakes. And the divine... The divine warning here that we see, the God-inspired warning to be careful... Ungodly romantic relationships can bring destruction. Now, what's interesting at this point is to remember this. If Lemuel is Solomon, then his mother is Bathsheba, right? The source of the advice. King David was his father. What happened in 2 Samuel 11? David commits adultery with Bathsheba. And then in an attempt to cover it up, has her husband killed. And then covers that up, makes it look like a 
military operation gone bad. Now listen to this. If Solomon or Lemuel likely heard this advice from his mother early in his reign, we know that because later what happens to Solomon? Flip over to 1 Kings chapter 11. Let me show you one of the saddest chapters in the whole Bible. Proverbs is Solomon giving wisdom early in his life. How do we know that? Because he has children in his home. 1 Kings chapter 11. But later in life, something happens. Later in life, something happens. When Solomon got old... Something tragic happened. And you know Solomon, right? He starts off so good. He's judging the nations. People like like royalty. Remember the Queen of Sheba? They're coming from distant lands to hear this wise man, to see his riches, to, to get to know this most wise, godly man. Things are going great. But just like his father, things take a turn for the worse. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, uh, Sidonian, and Hittite woman. Now listen, this is the key. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away from, uh, turn your heart away after their gods. Now, young people, you got to hear this, because this is the wisest man that ever lived showing the utter stupidity and idiocy of what happens when we turn away from the Word of God. He knew better. Look at this. But Solomon held fast to these in love. I don't care what country music says. Being in love can destroy you. It can lead you to do things that will dishonor God and follow you for the rest of your life. Don't ever, ever, ever put more stock in being in love as if it validates what you're about to do. Because that's a lie. I'm not just picking on country music. All music does that in one form or another. Don't believe that. Don't buy into that. Being in love is great when it is the right godly person that you're convinced it's the will of God to marry. That's when being in love is awesome. And when you're married to that person for years, you know when being in love is awesome? When it's your 60th anniversary. That's when being in love is awesome. Talk to Dwayne and Fran Poteet about what it means to be faithful. Talk to Russell and Sally Martin about what it means to be faithful. That's when being in love is awesome. This is not awesome. This is horrible. This is stupid. This is idiotic. And it's tragic. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah, usually usually being in love is more of a lust encounter. Thank you for clarifying that. That's That's not biblical love, is it? And what did they do? Verse 3, he had 700 wives, princesses, 300 concubines. We think of those as girlfriends. And his wives turned his heart away. Listen to this. For when Solomon was old, 
When Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. You know what that means? Old, old, old guys in the room, listen to this. Lust is a danger as much as when you're old as it is as when you're young. tragic now solomon wrote about this just turn back to proverbs and then go past proverbs 31 right into ecclesiastes ecclesiastes is solomon's autobiography it's the autobiography of the wisest man that ever lived he talks about this he talks about this very subject in this encounter he tells us how all this happened it's it's tragic but it's so helpful Listen to what he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. This is again Solomon writing his autobiography. Now, what he's doing in chapter 2 is he's looking for something that will satisfy him. That's what he's doing. Chapter 2 verse 1 says, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself. Solomon says, I want to find something in this life that will satisfy me. Now, young people, you need to get this. Because rather than try this out on your own, and feel the heartbreak of failure over and over and over again, let's learn from Solomon and avoid all that heartache, okay? Let's learn from him. Listen to what he says. Now, he's the wisest man that ever lived. He's one of the richest men that ever lived. He could literally have any experience he wanted. I have no doubt that if he lived today, he could buy an F-35 and go fly it if he wanted to. He could afford it. He could do anything. He could afford anything. So what does he do? He says, I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine, right? He tried alcohol. He enlarged his works. He built houses. He planted vineyards. He made gardens and parks for himself. He planted all kinds of trees. He made ponds. He irrigated the forest with trees. He bought male and female slaves. He had flocks and herds, right? He collects for himself silver and gold. He doesn't just get so... He's like, I'm, I have a gold and silver collection, right? He's just, all this money, all this wealth. And here it is, verse 8. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of many... Uh, the ple- pleasures of men, many concubines. There, there it is. He's exploring sexual sin as a means of satisfaction. He became great in Jerusalem. His... Uh, and, Verse 10 is interesting. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward and all my labor. Thus I considered, here's the conclusion, okay? Thus I considered all my activities, everything my hands had done, the labor which I exerted, and behold, all was vanity. Steam off of a cup of coffee. It's there and it's gone. Isn't that amazing? He says, I did that on purpose. And it was all tragic. Flip to the end of the book, chapter 12. This is how Solomon's life concludes. He starts off well. He's warning his boys. He knows better. He falls into sexual sin. His heart is led astray from pure-hearted, wholehearted devotion to the Lord and faithfulness to him. He gets involved in sexual sin. It's tragic. Ecclesiastes proves that. He says, I look back on it now. I see it didn't last. I, de- I see it didn't satisfy. And at the end of his life, at the end of his life, he repents. 
he barely salvages the landing of his life. Chapter 12, verse 13. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is this. You know what life's about? God-inspired, wisest man that ever lived, who had everything and found everything to be utterly unsatisfying. He said, you know what? The one thing matters, the one thing that satisfies, the one thing that life is about is this. You ready? Young people, are you listening? Fear God and keep his commandments. You want to know satisfaction in this life? Fear God and walk with him. Psalm 16 says, in your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there's pleasures forever. Fear God. Keep his commandments. Why? Verse 14, because God's going to bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it's good or evil. Wow. What a tragedy that God redeems at the last second. Why is that in our Bible? Because God loves us. And he wants us to be warned. He wants us to see before the danger. God loves us. He doesn't want us to go through that. That's why it's in our Bible. Don't do that. (laughs) I love you, God says. Don't do that. And brothers and sisters, if the wisest man that ever lived could fall into this, there's not a one of us that couldn't also fall into it. So let's draw near to God in humility and trust and fear and learn to keep his commandments. There's a second danger. We've talked at length about this, so we'll just wave our hands about it. There's two dangers, two main dangers that all young people face. This is college campuses. This is high school campuses. It's women and wine, or we could say this, don't be controlled by alcohol. Alcohol impairs judgment. Back to Proverbs 31, verse 5. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire strong drink. Why? For they will drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Alcohol impairs your judgment. And young person, at the very season of life when God wants you to be developing self-control and learning godliness and growing in maturity, you can compromise all of that by drinking. That's what alcohol does. It impairs your judgment. It'll undermine all of your best efforts if you're not careful. The the intoxicating effect of alcohol, our writer tells us, is only appropriate basically as an end-of-life painkiller. So he says if you're using it like morphine, okay, that's legit. But to be intoxicated, if that's not your situation, is unwise and even sinful. Ephesians 5.18 says don't be drunk with wine. Addictions, drunkenness is sin. Addictions are serious and a destructive problem. We've read about that in Proverbs 23. And believers must remember, listen to this, believers must remember that any alcohol-related impairment is forbidden. If you're buzzed but not drunk, you're violating this command. Because it is impairment that is the issue according to Scripture, and we've talked at length about that. Now, what is the common denominator? Listen to this. What is the common denominator between falling into sexual sin and falling into alcohol-related sin? There's a common denominator. And it's the one thing that young people should aim at most clearly in terms of developing it before the Lord. What's the common denominator? One of you said it, self-control. 
That's the common denominator. If you have self-control, you won't walk into sexual sin. If you have self-control, you won't get involved in alcohol. And interesting, the Bible, the Bible actually gives specific admonition to young people. It does. Uh, just hold your plate. Look over at Titus chapter 2. Let me prove this to you. Titus chapter 2. What do young, pe- young men in particular, young people in, in general, what do they need to focus on? So, so college students, high school students, junior high students, God has something for you to focus on in your life right now. And I think this is very helpful because there's lots of things competing for your attention. And God himself is going to tell us what we ought to focus on. Okay, look at this. Don't, don't take my word for it. Titus chapter 2, verse 6. Titus chapter 2, verse 6. You ready for this? Likewise, urge the young men to be, what's your Bible say? Sensible. You know what that means? Be a person of self-control. Young people, if you have self-control, that will save you so many, so many things. It will help you in so many areas. You say, are we just picking on young guys? Look back at the previous verse. What does the Bible say to young ladies? Urge the young women, verse 5, to be sensible. Huh. So maybe this is kind of important. Same word, same thing to our young people. And those of us that are old people here, one of the things that we ought to be doing is first of all, modeling self-control. And the second thing we should be doing is investing in the lives of our young people to help develop that self-control, that spirit-enabled, grace-empowered self-control, which the Bible says is a fruit of the spirit. Okay, that's the common denominator, self-control. So young person, look out for sexual sin, look out for alcohol, fear God, keep his commandments, draw near to him, develop self-control, and try to avoid that heartache in your life. The last thing that Lemuel's mother conveys to him, back to Proverbs 31, he's got all this power, right? He's the king. And, he's, and she, she says, son, don't use it for womanizing. Don't do it. Don't use it for wine and alcohol and partying, both of which would have been very easy for the king to do. He had all the resources and power to do either one of those things. So avoid women, avoid wine, look out for sexual sin, look out for alcohol. And instead, what should a king use his power to do? What should a leader focus on? This is interesting. If I'm not supposed to be partying in college, and I'm not supposed to be chasing after women in college, what should I focus on? How about this? Serving other people, especially those who can't defend themselves. That sounds like the second great commandment, doesn't it? Love your neighbor. Well, it is. It's a very particular expression of that. Look at what he says, verse 8. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all the unfortunate. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and defend the rights of the afflicted. Young people, listen to this. Leaders speak when they ought to speak. Do not keep your mouth closed when what you know to be true and what you know the word of God says demands that you open your mouth and you say something. That's what leaders do. Leaders take the initiative to say something when something needs to be said. And you know what, guys? You aren't too young to do that. 
11, 12, 13, 14, 18, 19, 20, 21, you're not too young. A godly man, a godly woman opens their mouth in ministry, in speaking the gospel, in speaking the truth in love, in serving other people, in defending the rights of people that can't defend themselves. Leaders speak when they need to speak. And specifically, Lemuel points out the need to defend the rights of three categories of people. Uh, The first category, my Bible translates as the mute or the dumb. It probably means people that are mentally or cognitively challenged in some way. These are people... This is the disabled community. Let's just put it like that. This is the the disabled community. Uh, Most of you know my story. I grew up with a severely handicapped younger brother. Uh, So I grew up in the disability community. And if there is a class of people that is more taken advantage of in the darkness of our society, it's this crowd, let me tell you. There was a doctor that did a surgery on my little brother, one of dozens of surgeries that he had. And um, it came out post-surgery, this is years later, that this guy was basically a crook. He would go in, take advantage of people with these uh, skeletal muscular issues, and he was known. The crazy thing was he was known as the specialist to this particular type of disability. That's the guy you went to. If you had a disabled child, you had this problem, that's the guy you went to. And he was a crook. And he took advantage of those people, including my brother. Godly young leaders defend people like that. Maybe it's some guy on the college campus that's, that's getting picked on. You know, Maybe it's somebody on your sports team that's getting picked on. Secondly, those appointed to destruction, those at the end of life. I think if if the disability community is one of the top communities that people uh, take advantage of, the second has to be our elderly population, and especially end-of-life people and uh, approaching the end of life. This godly mom says to her son, the king, you stick up for the rights of people who are at the end of life, people that say their life doesn't matter anymore because they're old and they're dying. They're going, to die. They're going to die anyway, right? That is a precious image bearer made by God and for God until the moment God calls them home, they are to be respected and honored and treated with love and dignity. And we could go off and talk about all sorts of end-of-life issues right now, but I think you know what I'm talking about. Godly leaders defend in those situations. And finally, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Those in need, those in poverty perhaps the afflicted. What does James tell us is true religion? Taking care of orphans and widows in their distress. James chapter 1, verse 27. What's that? That's right. Yeah, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, James 1, 27, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Psalm, 40, Psalm 146, 9, Isaiah 1, verse 117 says that God is near to the afflicted and the needy. And that should be something that we are concerned about as well. So young people, heed the word of God. Draw near to Him. Look out for these dangers. Build self-control into your life now. 
and cultivate a, a heart for God that will produce that fruit of the Spirit in your life. And remember that God has a, a great calling for us all, young and old, as leaders to defend the rights of the afflicted, to speak when we ought to speak, and to uphold the gospel and the truth of God where so many others are just taking advantage of those people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this interesting and, and really profound section of Scripture. Um, even using a man like Solomon, whose life was so checkered with both godliness and wisdom and such tragedy and foolishness, to see you redeem him at the end of life and then inspire in the Bible his whole story so that we could learn and benefit from his example. Lord, I pray for our young people that they would fear you and keep your commandments and they would be not riding on the, the coattails of their parents' faith, but they would be making their faith their own. Lord, I pray for our college students. Keep them close to you. Help them to draw near to you and see that they can live differently by your grace. They can walk in holiness and truth and service and love and self-control. Make them influences on their campuses for the gospel and for our high school students, our junior high students. Lord, they're not kids anymore. You're calling them to embrace a faith that is their own and to walk with you because they want to, not because someone is making them do it. Will you work in them? And as they grow and as they draw near to you and as they read your word and by faith and grace enable, uh, are able to live those things out, might they develop the fruit of the Spirit, which is self-control? Lord, we pray, would you keep our young people from these vices and temptations? And Father, might this text as well convict us old people too that lust and alcohol are not temptations of youth alone. They're temptations when we're old and when we think we're okay and we can put our guard down. We can follow a crowd and, and not defend and speak up about your truth or about the gospel when we ought to. But we've grown comfortable not doing it. So Lord, whatever, whatever is our situation today, will you give us grace to repent? Will you give us grace to change? And will you give us grace to follow what we've learned today in faithfulness to you? Lord, make us wise in Jesus for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.